Welcome back to Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, today on Dispatches from the Verge, David Morrison and I sit down with Bill Helm, an architect uh, in El Paso, Texas. And we get into this idea of uh, sacred space or numinous space and some of the research uh, Bill did during his time in architecture school uh, here at Desert Rain, actually. And so it's a two-part series. This is part one. Uh, tune in next week for the second half. Uh, but before we get into that, thank you to Diego at Recording Moving Studios. He does all the editing and sound engineering. Uh, thank you to Monk Drums, Jacob Nedia. That's what you hear in the background. If you want to learn more about Desert Rain Community, check out theruined.com. And if you want to hear more episodes, uh, whether it's Dispatches from the Verge, or Road to Desert Rain, check out drcrpod.com. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please tell a friend. Word of mouth and social media really helps us. We appreciate you, and let's get into it. Welcome to Desert Rain Community Radio. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. We're here with Bill Helm. Hello, hello. Sir William. David Morrison. It is I. And as always, Dorian Mason. Um, so today we're going to be experimenting. This might be a, a two-part, might be a long one-part. We'll see. Uh, but Bill has uh, come to share with us. Um, he's an architect. Indeed. A, a uh, philosopher. Of sorts. Actually, you introduce him. You know him better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, it's Bill Vandelay. He is an architect <laughs> in the Costanza School. <laughs> uh, I think you you grew up in uh, Indiana. Uh, I did Tom indeed. Tom Petty has some things to say about <laughs> people like you uh, listening Indiana to voice. that John Cougar Mellencamp Indiana rock when you were a kid. Uh, you came of age in the '90s, I believe. Yeah, and those white picket fences in Indiana. Yep, farm <laughs> farmland and Mid, all that. Midwest, Midwest Midwestern farm. values of hard work. Uh, when I met him, he was kind of a hippie artist guy. Just got out of, was not an architect at the time, but was a uh, photographer, artist, driving a hippie van. I was going to say, was this the era of the, was it a school bus or a van? It was a van. Yeah, this was nice. a van. And they were living down by a river. <laughs> as, as you should. <laughs> as Chris Farley taught us. So he's a fine arts kind of guy. And then, uh, and then you're also a truck driver. Oh, I yeah. Think that gives you real credibility. Yeah. Truck drivers are like the last vestige <laughs> of the American West and the American frontier, the yes. roads, you know, that kind of thing. Driving the lonesome road. Yeah. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, and I guess... You became an architect. Uh, yes, early early thirties, uh, mid thirties, mid thirties. Started early thirties. It's a long road to get to architecture, and I made it even longer by <laughs> <laughs> going through several other careers on the way there. You took the trucker's route. <laughs> we took the long way. That's the yes. Indiana way. You have a midlife crisis. You become an architect. <laughs> Some people get a red sports car, others yeah, get architect you know, degrees. Me, I had a triple bypass. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Bill was part of your church in the high school, right? That's that correct. The church in the box on the, the east side. 
Yes. And so that's your guys' connection. Right, yeah. They We met through the phone book, I think. Yes. There was just these yeah. big books back in the day. Yeah, they would and bring they you a new one every year. And they had they yellow would, pages. It was free. Yeah, they had these yellow pages, and you'd take out an ad, and we had a church ad. David's church was called the Quadruple A, so it would be the first one <laughs> in the church section. We did try to figure something like that out. I forgot what the trickery we were trying A for America's. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> so today we, uh, we're come together to sort of explore this idea of sacred space, of um, sort of the, this idea of contemplation and how that can uh, be injected into a physical space, um, the importance culturally of having these sacred um, spaces or these ideas about bringing the sacred into a building. Yeah. Is that a reasonable? Yeah. And I think we're going to have a long discussion about how we got to a conclusion there. Um, but I think the sort of jumping off point for me was some inspiration that I took to architecture school with me from David, which was um, uh, the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Which introduced me to the concept of these mystical monks going off into the wilderness, into the wild, and confronting the phenomena of nature in their quest for um, awakening and enlightenment. And so I was thinking about these places like Skellig Michael and... Um, uh, the version with the monks, not uh, the Star Wars version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which we can never visit. Skellig Michael now. They ruined it for they us. They did ruin it for me. I'm Is it there like to go there at some kind of months long waiting, no way. waiting list or something? I saw Star Wars and I and Skellig Michael, seriously, is one of the few places on the earth. You know, I don't want to travel. Yeah. That's the one place you, I wanted you, to go to. We've had that conversation multiple <laughs> It's the times. one place I wanted to go to. And then I was watching Star Wars at the theater, and I, I, I recognized it immediately, and I was like, damn it. Every good thing that I have, they take away. We'll now, to, yeah, there's no way you could visit that place now. We'll get you a VR headset, and you can wander around now, the, the little chapel here, pretend you're there. We didn't even need to see the movie. We just saw the preview, and I was like, ah! Yeah, recognize those jagged rocks. No! Yes. Um, and, and maybe you could give a little bit of, because uh, that book has come up a, a handful of times on the podcast. So maybe, David, you could give a little synopsis of, of that book. Yeah, I guess it was late 90s. We were pretty yeah. suburban kind of people. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Very uh, much separated the material world and the spiritual world, the way most American uh, spiritual people do, right? You know, especially Christians, I would think. Yeah. And we were the more spiritual of the cousins of Christianity, right? We were charismatics, <laughs> but even right. even being charismatic Pentecostals, we separated. You know, God was in the meeting mm. mostly, or mm -hmm. in an evangelistic opportunity out there in the wild with with. The, the sinners, but, but you didn't see the world glowing with the presence and the fire of God. Interesting. We wanted to, but we, it was kind of, 
And this book kind of opened a history that, yeah, this is not only accessible, but it's accessing you. Mm. And and so the, it was one of those books that I, I didn't, I wasn't reading it as much as it was reading me, you know, right. it found us. And, uh, and we would just, we wanted something more, an, an ancient future kind of faith. And, uh, and so that incarnational beauty, which is basically seeing the beauty and the presence of God burning in the material world, um, not separate from it. And so that's kind of, that was the, the part of the outlook of these early uh, Celtic monks, Irish monks, and, uh, and really the ancient world. Yeah. You know, it's not just, yeah, a, it, yeah it's yeah, not a cultural thing. It's a global thing. It's yeah, just they happen to get literacy at the right time, mm. yeah. uh, which was much later. You know, like I said, when uh, the, Aristotle and Plato were walking around, the Irish were living in trees <laughs> still, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. So they didn't learn how to read and write until, yeah. uh, you know, the, uh, after Christ. And so uh, A.C.E. And so so they happened to hit that, that synergy, one of those few times where a civilization mm. – uh, where its ancient pathways were still current, mm-hmm. and then the new technology, writing in their case, Showed came up. together. Yeah, and that's why that's why we that book became so important and that, a reference point. You yeah. Know? So yeah. So and I guess back to you, Bill. As far as like learning about some of this stuff, was your trajectory already headed towards architecture school, or was this even before that? Um, no, this is before that. So just. Dived in deep to all of that, and then another, um, you know, other elements came into it, like um, Thomas Merton's writings um, uh, on the Desert Fathers. So again, this sort of recurring theme of of these monks going out, separating themselves from civilization to sort of hone and focus in on um, an extreme experience, mm. um, and from that extreme experience came. Um, it was sort of a modus or operational um, way of approaching contemplation to get to an awakening or revelation or spiritual experience, deep metaphysical experience. Which I think, it. I mean, obviously, I, I, it seems like that's becoming more common, that search for, or maybe not more common. But it, it, there's like a resurgence of like this search for something bigger, something deeper. Um, and in our modern time, we turn to the internet, right? We turn to technology to try to find that outlet. Whereas it seems as though maybe these some of these ancient ideas of going to nature, going yeah. to the desert, finding those sacred um, spots, making a sacred spot, cultivating a sacred spot. Yeah. Um, is sort of maybe a, a, another outlet to pursue in 2022. Yeah. So, um, well, and at some level, which we can come back to, but it, I mean, at some level, any um, what the what the research sort of uncovers is any sort of mark of man upon the earth. Is a is a move to create sacred space. It is mm. a, um, it is a it is an attempt to 
recreate or is an attempt to participate in the creation act of God mm. of earth um, and, and experience that by organizing um, the world around you out of chaos. So when we think about the Cartesian grid overlaid earth and the United States locally, but earth that, that is an act of, um, of trying to organize out of chaos and then and reenact that creation. And so by doing that, you're participating in that act, which becomes a sacred act. Um, one of the sources that, uh, that I used in the research was uh, the book, The Sacred and the Profane by I'm probably going to botch his name. You know, you don't all have to write me to tell me this, but <laughs> Mercier Allied um, uh, wrote um, on this, particularly this aspect, like um, the concept of Imigo Mundi and Axis Mundi, Imigo Mundi being sort of the, the laying out of lines towards the horizon in the four directions, the four okay. cardinal directions, um, is that organization of space. Every village settlement starts with the crossing of two lines and grows mm -hmm. out from there towards the four horizons. Um, and then the axis mundi is the connection to the sky, the vertical connection. So it's those sort of cardinal axes. And it, I mean, to this day, that's, that's how we design. Right. You got to start with a line. You got to start with something to organize. Um, so, anyway, I'm getting down a rabbit trail already. But yeah, so I was going to say maybe maybe before we uh, continue on, one of the things you brought up before we cut on the mics was sort of uh, covering some some terminology. Yeah, um, and so maybe we can go down that that pathway and explore that a little bit. Um, yeah, to set up for the bigger the bigger conversation. Let's do that. So, you know, my my research and the project that came out of it, I titled Numinous Space. And numinous is a term that was coined uh, by a German philosopher, theologian, Rudolf Otto. And the numinous, as he defined it, was to signify the concept of the holy or sacred moment <clears throat> minus uh, an implied quote-unquote morally good minus its rational aspect in addition to that. So it's, re it's really about the, this, act, this aspect of a spiritual moment. Mm. Um, and uh, in Otto in his work then uh, brought up some other terms which we can talk about. Uh, Latin Mysterium tremendum, which is a mystery mystery that repels, um, in which uh, we think of something that is dreadful, fearful, overwhelming in its uh, in in its aspect. Um, think about uh, we can think about this as far as the concept of religious dread or religious awe, which we can find. This referenced by a term 
the fear of God in um, in the scriptures and in, in the Old Testament. Um, mysterium fascinism, a mystery which attracts. Uh, so, a mystery which pulls you towards it, um, towards this idea of glory or beauty. It's sort of the opposite of the other. And um, Rudolf Otto said, these two qualities, the daunting and fascinating, now coming in a strange harmony of contrast and the resu resultant dual character of the numinous consciousness is at once the most the strangest and most noteworthy phenomenon in the whole history of religion. Um, these two characteristics also comprise um, a whole line of thought within um, romantic philosophy from starting in the mid-1800s moving forward called the notion of the sublime. And the notion of the sublime was conceived as, <clears throat> although it had been, you know, thought about for many, you know, generations before it, the, the romantics thought about the sublime and the notion of it as an opposite to the beautiful. So, um, and that, you know, first came up in the 18th century with writings like Edmund Burke's writings on, uh, on the beautiful and the sublime. The sublime is um, a contrast to aesthetic beauty. Um, but what they meant by the sublime was this physiological effect of a simultaneous attraction and repulsion to something. Mm. Something more powerful than you, something you don't have control over. It's beautiful, yet at the same time, you pull back from it. So it's that tension between the two is what they're saying the sublime is. It's not, you know, an object is not sublime. Mm -hmm. It would be more like um, a chasm, a great chasm, like the Grand Canyon. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you have that, ex it's an experience is what the sublime is. It is that experience of standing there and it is simultaneously beautiful and wants to pull you into it. And, it, and at the same time, pushed back by that idea that, um, oh, my, you know, this could kill me. So, and you know, and whenever I am in places like that, I, I have that experience or, you know, top, top of a tall building, it's like draws you to the edge, but away from it at the same time. When I think in the, when I, when I was reading some of that stuff this morning, the thing that sort of my recovery background jumped into to play and, and um, this idea of, uh, so in the recovery world, we're running towards spirits. If you think of alcohol as spirits when we're drinking um, and then in recovery, we're trying to run towards the spiritual, the spiritual experience. And, and there's this term rocketed into the fourth dimension, you know, and so through your admission of powerlessness to the spirits, aka alcohol, you have an opportunity to open up this, this other gate that can go into this fourth dimension, which I feel is, is sort of this sublime experience um, in a, 
Cause it's not necessarily in a physical place like the Grand Canyon, right? Like you can yeah. get sober in, in downtown Cleveland, you can get sober, you know, in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, you know, tons of places to find recovery. Um, but that same, uh, spiritual experience or, su um, sublime experience can be, can be had. Yeah. I think there's any number of ways you can experience the sublime, whether it's something physical or, or not that's triggering it. But um, we, I think, in common sort of modern terminology, misunderstand what that concept of the sublime was to the romantics. Um, so that's why it's important to lay it out here because a lot of um, the thought and research follows through that, that idea. Another term which I, I'll come to at some, some point along the way, which is important, is the term genus loci, which is um, a concept so that we track back to the Romans, which in our common sort of understanding of it, we understand it as the spirit of place. Um, it is a theme that sort of runs through um, the philosophy of phenomenology as well. Um, but to the Romans, what it meant was there was a spirit, like they had a spirit over every place. Um, and, you know, since the time when I was first re researching this, I, you know, I've been to Pompeii in Italy and they would actually have, and you can see them there. And when you go inside the house, there would be an altar just inside the door that was the home of the spirit of the place mm. on that altar. Um, but in contemporary usage, it's more about the spirit of, or the atmosphere of the place. That's in Japanese aesthetics too, isn't it? Yeah. Small I mean, the, little... yeah. The Japanese um, tradition is very much plugged into that idea of. It's interesting that Japan and then Rome would be connected that way. Well, I think Japan has a lot of understanding of these concepts that has ran all the way through time that they never divorced themselves of that somehow Western thought mm. did. And now, and so now, you know, as Americans, we're trying, we, you know, we have to try to uncover all of this. Um, and, you know, that, you know, uncovering goes all the way back to the romantics. That's what they were trying to do was try to understand um, these concepts that we see and um, particularly in Buddhism, we see, you know, in the Native American uh, civilizations and um, and early civilizations all across the world. Right. It's, it's, it's a reoccurring idea for ancient as we learn more about ancient civilizations. And I think it's interesting that idea you just talked about, about some places holding on to those ideas and they're, you know, they, they've lasted the test of time and then other cultures or civilizations are trying to, we're trying to unearth them again, right? right. Rediscover them um, because, because of how important they are. Yeah. So, um, So did, you know, to bring it back to, you know, how I got into this, I went into graduate school, 
State University in New York and in Buffalo um, and uh, to study architecture. And as you get into that, if um, if you're going to do thesis work, you don't just do that in, you know, one year or semester. You have to build that research up. So going into that, I had, you know, these sources we've already talked about, like Merton and, and How the Irish Saved Civilization, which, who's the author? I'm blanking. Thomas Cahill. Cahill. Um, so I had those in, in my thoughts as I went into this and, and so started to try to figure out a framework for this research. And that's, that, that's where we um, got into. So um, so I guess one question I would have regarding that, when you, when you were starting to at the preliminary area of this, figuring out what, you know, what the thesis would be about and, and um, having these uh, references or resources already. Did you already feel that connection? You know, spoil alert, a bunch of this work happened in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Desert Rain Community Radio. <laughs> did you already have that connection to the desert or did that come through your studies within architecture? I already had the connection to the desert obviously had lived here for several years, but I was like attracted to the desert because I didn't grow up here. I'm, I'm a transplant. I was attracted to the desert for a number of reasons. And as, as David said, my background originally was in fine arts photography. So I'm a photographer first, uh, then a truck driver, then an architect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, you know, even like the truck driving was this sort of quest for discovery mm-hmm. um, and for vision um, and seeing the world and the countryside. But um, in El Paso specifically, when I arrived here, the thing that gets me is and always regrounds me is the vision of this hard lands. Um, horizon line we have Mm. and how it defines the landscape and simultaneously that defines the dome or the vault of the sky so that then comes back to this idea of axis mundi and connection Mm. to the sky horizon line defines the sort of uh, sky over you Um, and then the light and color of this place, the color of the light of this place is pretty profound. And that all came into the, you know, conclusions, not conclusions, but the sort of design um, elements that came out of the research. Right. But, and how long did you live in El Paso prior to going to architect school? Came here in 97, left in 2003. Okay. So six years in the desert, a good time of it spent actually in Chaparral right. before David and company were out here. Um, okay, so maybe an example of the fascination and the repelling, the, the trembling, and then the harmony between those yeah. would be uh, in, the, in the classic Jewish story of Moses. He's doing his regular work. Of course, it's in the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, sheep herding. Then he sees a bush on fire, and he's fascinated by it. So that that would be the 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 you know fascinated by the mystery. So he goes up to it to see what it is. 
probably started with different levels of curiosity. You get on the internet, you start looking up some spiritual mystery on Wikipedia. <laughs> it starts with a banal curiosity and right. then, and then a, a, a gazing at it and then a drawing even closer. He goes up to it. Then it speaks and the deity says to him, uh, remove your shoes for the ground you stand on is holy. So then that's the, the, the trembling part, the you know, back off. But the harmony between it would be removing your shoes. And classically, we used to always, you know, define that as your sinful humanity. Take mm. that, remove that. Um, I definitely would have seen that 20 years ago and before in my own life. But now I see it as remove the barrier and be grounded to this experience. And the ground is right where you're standing on the earth and remove the barrier of your shoes between you know, at some point, humanity decided to wear shoes for, for practical reasons. Right. But we lost something mm -hmm. in it, that connection and that touch with the earth, uh, you know, sand between your toes mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing. And so that's, so that's the harmony between being fascinated by a spiritual mystery and experience and then being repelled by it, but then being grounded in that harmony, harmony there. So. When I think the pop culture... Um reference you gave and and uh i was some of the research was the the bono interview he yeah. talks about this idea of the two two types of music that uh that are most profound to him and i don't think he uses those exact words but are songs where you're running away from god oh yeah, yeah. and when you're running towards god right yeah um and that was that it was actually that part that got me thinking about that recovery example i gave earlier um, because those are the two things we're doing within the recovery world. We're either running towards the alcoholic spirits, right, and away right. from God, sort of that that fearless, that fear and that powerlessness, yeah. or the other direction. Yeah, so <clears throat> we had mentioned Rudolph Otto before that that came up with this term of the numinous, and this was in a book he wrote, originally published in in German, called The Idea of the Holy and the idea of the holy is the numinous. So he he said that an awakening to the numinous is a, is an awakening to divine awe. And the the example he gives is precisely the example David just gave of Moses encountering the burning bush. Um, and it is there that we see that a space can be made holy, be made numinous. Yeah. The, with that with that example, we see that, that man has a concept of a space being holy. Um, and so um, with that, we also see a correlation between this mystery of the, the, the concept of the holy and um, the fear of the Lord and a correlation to the sublime experience, all wrapped into one package okay. right there. Um, ultimately, um, what that gets us to is a mechanism that we can plug into when, um, when looking for a way to create a space that is numinous. And by numinous, a space that is eliciting a reaction or a metaphysical connection to a place. 
So the and that's really the framework that I was setting up for the for the thesis work was how do we think about not not an end goal of like what an architecture of contemplation or a sacred architecture looks like, but what is the mechanism you can use to get there? Um, because at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the reward of contemplation is the experience of numinous that, so what is something that can help put you into, um, that place. So <clears throat> that's, that's essentially, um, the long road to get there. So you gave the example of like the, the Grand Canyon earlier. Can you give another, maybe like a, a physical structure where you had encountered something like this or similar to this? I can give you a lot of examples, some of which I've experienced since, um, but also before. I mean, I think an easy example, which we sort of, and I'll start at the easy ones. The easy example that that you might think of is a is a grand cathedral that you've been in at some point in your life, whether that's you know local or you know in Rome or wherever it is in the world. Um, Gothic cathedrals in Europe. When you walk into these places, there there is that experience from their height, their scale, also the way that the architects manipulated light mm -hmm. and the perception of that light in them right um it it's not you know they weren't holy because there was a crucifix on the wall it, it, they became it becomes a holy experience through the manipulation of spaces and light that elicit this reaction in you um you know since then um the you know, there's that I've been to. There's places in Rome like this, like. But then we were talking about Japan earlier. The the Japanese um, have an amazing way of orchestrating spaces, both on you know the large scale and the small scale simultaneously. And when you experience some of the temple, the Zen temples and Zen gardens, um, they're orchestrating space down to the macro level where there's like folks that dedicate their entire lives to maintaining those gardens mm. down to the moss. Like there's a guy that just maintains the moss. Yeah, the moss guy. Yeah. <laughs> Call it the moss guy. <laughs> we need it perfected. Um, so I, I've, I, a similar experience that I've shared on this podcast is walking from the train station up the hill to Assisi. Yeah. There was something magical that was going on there. You know, I have this, this backpack on, I'm, I haven't seen any of the cathedrals yet. You know what I mean? Like the CC has some beautiful cathedrals. I wasn't even there yet. I was yeah. far away. Um, so I'm curious, David, what are, what are some of the experiences you've had in your life with those sort of numinous, numinous spaces? Uh, I think I would add a, 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 the, I don't know if I'm cutting ahead, but there are spaces that have a sense of deep memory to them. Mm -hmm. And so you can feel 
for lack of a better phrase, the presence of the ancestors there. Mm. And so when I walked downtown El Paso, I could feel the presence of my own family. Right. There. Embedded uh, in holy, it. Yeah, at Sacred Heart Church, uh, places that were notorious saloons, uh, yeah. you know, all those places. Um, there's a sense of memory. It reminds me also of the story that John O'Donohue tells in, in his book, Anamkara, where a friend of, a neighbor of his had a ruined structure. So it was just a collapsed house. Mm. So picture just some rounded rocks, basically, and some timber piled in a field. And the local priest asked the neighbor uh, if, the, if the church could buy that property to expand its parking lot. And the, the neighbor said, no, where would, where would the ancestors live? Mm. Uh, you know, that's where they live. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, the, that's the, their... And the little people, you know, and, and I'm not talking about Lucky Charms. Right. You know, there's a deeper tradition there. Uh, there's a sacredness to even a ruin mm-hmm. uh, because it's full of memory. And so I think everyone has experienced that. You know, you go to an old place, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there's this sense of, wow, I'm, uh, you know, like time being compressed to a glass onion, if you will. It's the past, the future are all coming together in the present moment. Um, kind of yeah. colliding together in, yeah, that, exactly. in that second so there, or moment kinds of feelings and and usually you can you know you have to usually these you could lose it with because you're on a tour guide or something like that you know places like that so you you kind of have to go find it yourself Mm -hmm. and and go off the tour guide you know and uh and that kind of thing so well it's funny too because the cc example was because i didn't want to wait for a taxi or the bus i just wanted to get (laughs) there you know so it was a matter of impatience that I had this this experience walking up the hill, whereas if I, you know, I would have just, it would have been less time, right, yeah. than walking. Right. But I would have also missed out on that, the entering, the, the crossing over of that threshold whenever, I, you know, I couldn't go back and point to you like, oh, this is where the threshold changed. Yeah, it was yeah. just in the in a moment like, oh, shit, this, there's something here. Yeah. St. Frankie and Claire smoked cigarettes. <laughs> yeah together right here being <laughs> mocking me like you should have waited for the taxi <laughs> uh yeah and i think um you know it, david to your point of time being compressed into these old places something i've learned over time and travels is to not try to crunch too much into what i'm doing when i'm traveling not try to like hit all the spots, yeah. but more like let's go, you know, let's go to a city and let's live there for a week and walk the streets and understand what it's like to experience the spirit of the place, the genius okay. Um so the the design work that went into this ultimately became um, a, ph- a phenomenological study. Mm. So phenomenology is a little hard to define, but it is, you know, a whole strain of philosophy that deals with all, you know, for any subject matter, whether it's architecture or, or um, anything else, the understanding the phenomena 
of something, the thingness of something, what makes it what it is, its being. Um, and so that became a, a mechanism for me to understand how to, like, when we're like looking at the desert, um, the phenomena of the light and how to focus on that and focus attention on the light of a place or uh, the vegetation of a place or the air or the sound of the air. Um, you know, so as we're talking about these civilizations around the globe that understand this and understand how to interact with um, the spirituality of a place, um, we have very great local examples here in New Mexico. I say local, they're not 10 miles down the road, but local to the state, because in the United States, um, the society that has sort of carried this thought through time, you know, over a thousand years that we can actually go to and understand, um, would be the Pueblos of New Mexico. Mm. And in the Pueblos, there were rituals that accompanied the construction of a house or a kiva, primarily because each of those built structures were conceived of as a thing, as a as a living organism. Oh, really? These rituals. Wow. Um, so these rituals would be um, performed in a very specific way, so that um, the position of what they're building out of this ritual or communicating with the spirits. And so it was almost a birthing. Yeah. And so they would be very careful about how they would cite a construction and its orientation to the earth and respect to the powers of the cardinal directions. Um, you know, assuming that, you know, each house or, or Kiva was placed in its cosmos was, you know, thereby also endowed with a soul. So that sort of comes back to this, you know, correlation to the idea the Romans had of, of genius loci. Which, and I think in West, you know, at least in the United States, Western culture, we look at buildings, most, you know, most people just look at it as a utility, right? Like, you, you, you know, you sleep in there, you, cook yeah. your food in there like if you're like yeah. oh that that dwelling has a soul that you'd get yeah. it's like uh, yeah okay <laughs> sure so in, in in doing so then you know the pueblo constructs would become potential places of communication with the spirits mm. a connection point between the three cosmic levels of the world the underworld and the earth and the sky and um so, in doing so, their constructs would be organized around elements within their world that were sacred to them, like the mountain peaks or um, a sacred stream. Um, the most precise sort of example I found of this in my research is at Taos. And in the Taos Pueblo, 
the great plaza is organized around a very clear view of Taos Mountain. Uh, From this mountain flows the sacred creek that bisects the Pueblo Plaza and divides the winter block from the, from the summer block, the winter block being the northern apartment block and the summer being the southern apartment block. So they would live on different areas of the Pueblo depending on the time I, of the year? Or is that just what it was? I think it was, that was just what it was referred I to. See, I see, I see. Um, so, you know, in that way, these, you know, New Mexican Pueblos um, are probably our best sort of local archetype of of this lost worldview, but it is, you know, very much about orientation within the world and connection to, you know, above and around us, and and you know, living and existing at the you know quote unquote center of of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say we have that if we don't even recognize it as such in El Paso with our own mountain being our orientation in the world. Mm. Um, You know, El Pasoans, you know, I will often hear El Pasoans who grew up here that move somewhere else, like where I come from, where it's flat and, (laughs) and, uh, watch the cardinal directions are not three days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My dog ran away. Yeah. He's still over there. You can see him. Uh, but you know, I, I I hear folks that are from here and have this sort of very sort of visceral connection to the landscape by identifying their place in the world by looking to the mountain mm-hmm. when they go to some other landscape where you don't have a reference point like that, being feeling like lost in the world. Um, there are certain places within the United States where that becomes very extreme, like. Um, like in the south where you have these canopies of trees that like encroach on you um you can't even see the horizon and it's very sort of disorienting that that was my experience when i moved uh my first station in the navy was south carolina yeah and getting on the interstate and you're just in a tunnel of trees and you're like where yeah where am i going i have no idea (laughs) what where in the world am i where you know it's just the opposite out here you get on the interstate and you can see yeah. Forever until you know until it's usually a mountain range. Yeah, you could that stops. Will tell you where you're at. Yeah, I or, would find or like the warriors when they saw the the Ferris wheel at Coney Island and they knew. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how well, the kids like us in Northeast warriors. El Paso. When we see the A on the mountain, that's how we know we're old. Well, and <laughs> an extreme example, also the connection to the Navy. I, I was on a submarine, so I never got to really be in the middle of the ocean. But some of my close friends were on aircraft carriers. And one friend said he would not go to the flight deck, or I guess they couldn't go to the flight deck, but whatever is right below that. Because looking out into the endless ocean was so disorienting (laughs) that it wasn't even worth it. He would rather stay down in the machinery room and not think that he's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it was a really interesting Yeah, That's a sublime experience right there. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, so you can experience that, you know, I started by referencing cathedrals, but you can experience this in all sorts and uh, of experiences across your life. It's not, it's not necessarily a, um, 
experience that's bound to a church or a synagogue or, mm-hmm. or, or anything else like that. But. Income level, none of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess one uh, sort of a follow-up question is it, how how did you how were you able to draw that line or connect that dot to the pueblos? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? So, just you know, you're you're going into your this these studies and research around you know this idea of of cultivating a space for contemplation right and so i i guess if you i mean obviously this was years ago but if you can remember the sort of how you drew that line or brought it brought it to the ancient pueblos and and how they were able to cultivate those things and to them it was just that's just life right like it, they didn't think about it necessarily in some right. special way right yeah. But that's just how they lived. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately it came back to this, you know, the idea of engaging phenomena of a site. Um, ultimately, what I ended up doing as a precursor to actually, um, as a precursor to actually doing any sort of design work, but following from all of this research that led there was I, I came to desert rain and I built a primitive hut out there in the wilderness, in the desert. And, um, part of that experience was building this shelter Mm. in the extreme conditions of, you know, summer heat. Right. And then, And then once constructed, this thing provided shelter for me to inhabit and view and observe the the phenomena of the site from a protected place. So that was like a very important thing to understand that, um, especially in extreme climates like we have here, you're never going to get to well i mean maybe there are examples of this but it's very hard to get into a place of contemplation unless you're protected from the brutal expanse of the sky and sun um that could also have another effect on you but (laughs) and so what was the timeline around like how long did it take you to to construct the primitive setup how long did you sort of live in that it was uh it was about a week and a half it was a couple of um i want to say it was three or four days of construction and then um and then about the same amount of time of observation where i would just and there was actually it was the height of monsoon season, so I got <laughs> I got like the full expanse of of experience there yeah. from 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 the heat to the you know to the, to the rain and deluge, and that was in two thousand six when we had this amazing like deluge year. Um, so we got to see like you know all of the extremes of mm-hmm. the Chihuahuan Desert uh, brought to life, and that then was uh 
data, I guess, raw data that I was able to take back with me into the design studio. So I guess th this just cropped up as, as, cause we're talking about the world of academia on a certain level, right? You're, you're, you're getting a, a graduate degree. How was it your, your peers and the, you know, the professors there, how, how did they, um, kind of see or interact with this such such a abstract idea in the you know the world of architecture <laughs> uh -huh. a, how very perceptive of you to <laughs> <laughs> um it was a mixed bag okay um i had uh thankfully an amazing um thesis chair who actually introduced me to the con concept of phenomenology and when I, and that he was my first um, studio professor and was a mentor, actually is a mentor un, unto this very day, but was a mentor um, back then when I was, you know, a newbie to understanding, you know, the idea of setting an architectural problem up for yourself to resolve, mm. which is, you know what, which is what a thesis is. It's right. like you gotta, you gotta set some boundaries, and you gotta set up a problem, and then you gotta figure out how to get from point A to point B. And um, and, but I also had uh, another professor on my uh, committee that, um, probably halfway through the research just didn't like the direction it was going <laughs> because in academia, the professors are using the students to sort of help them further their own research. Of course. Right. <laughs> Which is well documented in the world of academia. <laughs> and, and so, but there was, but there was value in both because I got a lot of, um, I got a I got a, a wealth of knowledge out of out of both of these mentors along the way, and um, the thesis committee um, member really like revealed all of the thought of the romantics and the notion of the sublime and like a deeper understanding of the sublime, and then I was able to then use that as the tool to engage. Um, a phenomenological approach to uncovering um, the phenomena of a site and phenomenology was introduced to me by my thesis chair. So both of these gentlemen like super instrumental in what happened, but they were coming at it from completely different directions. Yeah. Cause I just on a, you know, on a lower level, I think about my friends and if I start talking about contemplation and stuff like that with someone that's not really not all that interested in it. Right. Like, and just watching their eyes glaze over. And so that, you know, that's kind of what made me think of, well, you know, this is an academic yeah. uh, endeavor, right? And so it's, it's you would have to have some kind of support there. Um, but I, I didn't think about, too, the push, the pushback. Yeah. Right? And being able to, to cultivate something even in that scenario. Yeah. So, um, and ultimately, you know, you got to, land the plane at some time in academia. <laughs> right. So like, when are you going to do it and how are you going to get there? And, um, you can circle the airfield many times, but, um, I can just imagine you going, well, I'm going to go set up a tent in Chaparral, New Mexico and see what I see. <laughs> like, Great what? career move. 
<laughs> like say that again, slower this time. Jeez. <laughs> oh, but um, but you know, huge blessing to have my thesis chair just say, you know, this is this is your undertaking. Like you take it in the direction you're led to take it in, and he just supported me. You know, from from zero to a hundred on it. So. Which is, you know, that's like, in my mind, that's true research, right? Someone coming with, with a heart or a soul wanting to investigate something and having, having that, uh, you know, in this case, a state school in New York support you and say, yeah, let's, let's do this, like yeah. figure out what that, what that means to you and, and how that sort of ripples out into the greater world. Yeah. And um, all of this has sort of then thus fortunately informed the way that, you know, I approach architecture to this day and the way that I practice and design any project. And that really sort of was the sort of crux of the thesis at the end was not that I'm just specifically going out into the desert and creating, you know, a solitary place of contemplation. It was more about getting to a framework or a construct for approaching any architectural problem or program, as we call it, um, program being use of building, uh, so that it, in its own way, becomes sacred um, in its by its very use. Um, and, and I think that might be an interesting sort of trail to go. So we're, we've been speaking almost for an hour, but I, I think a, an interesting trail to go down for a bit and, you know, who knows for how long, but sort of this idea of cultivating sacred space. You know, I know, I know David and I have talked about it in the context of desert rain and sort of how this place has been cultivated um, towards the sacred, right? Because you can't really make something a sacred place. You can't be like, okay, this is sacred and everyone has to respect it. You, there's a cultivation and a, and a um, maybe a vision would be the right word. Yeah, um, develop a sense of presence, for lack of a better, better word, or to use an old term, uh, prayer condition it. <laughs> <laughs> so may, maybe you can talk about that for a few minutes, David, just this idea of of that, like cultivate, you know, walking towards the idea of cultivating a sacred space. Yeah. Well, I think it, it can be very simple. Uh, you know, you mentioned the desert fathers and mothers. Well, they said, just go to your cave, go inside your cave and it will teach you everything you need to know. And so, you know, a student would go out there and teach me about God. They said, no, go to your cave. And when they say go to your cave, they're saying, even the cave of the heart. Right. Deeper. Yeah. And so, so live from the heart and, and then creativity flows. I think we did a podcast on creativity, right? And right. So that one will be coming, will have already come out by this time this one comes yeah, out. So yeah. So you give your mindfulness to something, you give your, your attention to something and then a vision develops and then a creative thing begins to happen. Uh, and then, and then a community develops around that. So then people that are attracted to that uh, will also come in with another piece of the, the puzzle. Because um, I don't know how to build anything. Um, 
not even out of popsicle sticks. I can't even do that. <laughs> so does that make sense? So of course, but, yeah. but I could be present. I could be the only me that I know to be, and then in that's and then it begins to go out of there. So yeah, and then connected with that, Bill, what 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 has your research or your experience in in the world of architecture? sort of uh, illuminated for you as far as this idea of cultivating a sacred space? Well, and I think we talked about this at the very beginning as a rabbit trail, but, um, you know, what What Allied touched on in the sacred and the profane is like any mark of man upon the earth mm. is, a, is, a, is a move in participating yeah. in the sacred and organizing the world around you out of chaos. Um, and he uses just the example of like the beginning of any village, any settlement throughout history from the beginning of time to now starts with two lines crossing each other. Mm -hmm. And from that, a community grows out of it. And from that, you've like, you're participating in the creation of the universe in that in that aspect so you're organizing and and imbuing a place um with the sacred with that act well it's funny too because even even when you start organizing that chaos is still going to bump up against it right we were you and i david were just talking about katrina you know hurricane katrina a couple of days yeah. ago and the 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 unpredictability of life yeah you know i think yeah. about the story i know we brought this up multiple times but the story of job in the bible right because it's very organized, life is going great, and <laughs> chaos starts yeah. bumping yeah. up against it, one thing right after the it's, other. It's definitely a yin and yang kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I've got a practical example. Like when we first came out here, the first thing we did, and I th we may have talked about this before. Uh, the, so the original owners had a trash pit, mm. and so they burned their trash at this, you know, little ways off here. We... When we showed up here, we gravitated towards the trash pit. I don't, I don't know if because we're trash collectors, but that just seemed, the trash people of Chaparral. And so, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, this is an accidental. You give a, it starts with giving a kid a coloring book. That's how all this starts, right? Mm -hmm. And they and they color. Uh, and so we, yeah, and so we that seemed like a good spot to set up. Uh, at the time, we were really into uh, Stations of the Cross. You're right. So we set up crosses around this, you know, in a, in a angled, in a, a triangled triangulation around a trash pit. Right. And then Bill, uh, I don't know how far it was. Maybe it wasn't that long after, right? Just got a bunch of cinder blocks and made it a better trash pit. <laughs> Had a, he put in a geometrical design to it. And it wasn't like we were like this, we need to turn this into a sacred space. Right, right. It wasn't right, that right. at all. He just got a wild hair up his ass and <laughs> wanted, bought some cinder, right? And we, yeah. Because we wanted probably to not have our kids fall in the fire. Yeah. That's probably yeah. what it was. Yeah, it was a practice. We had toddlers, <laughs> we had toddlers at the time, but yeah. we also loved our fires. We were in, because we had burned a Christmas tree one time at your house. Yeah. And it was the most amazing. <laughs> if you're a pyro, a pyromaniac like us, yeah, it was the one of the most amazing, not expected things. 
uh, you'd think they they have gasoline in their sap <laughs> or something. So so it was probably out of necessity. Right. So but it became a very aesthetic fire pit then, and then over the years that became a gathering place. Um, immediately it had a repelling effect. Uh, a neighbor thought we were uh, we were <laughs> drumming and jumping through fire. <laughs> Uh, thought we were worshiping the devil uh, and the crosses. I, why, why would devil worshipers bury their sacrifices at crosses? But, you know, right, I guess yeah. these things don't need to have rationality. Yeah, you don't have to be logical uh, to call the police. Yeah, and so the sheriff shows up here. So there's a repelling going on. Uh, we'd have groups out here, and a bonfire with drumming was was a thing that we would do. And I remember people would uh, would would who were on retreat here, some individuals would be triggered by the fire, even they had a fear of fire. Mm. There was just something too, like your friend, uh, your coworker on the on the uh, on the here. ship. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was, it's too much for me to handle. Fire is too elemental uh, for me to handle. I want to keep the fire at the Pentecostal meeting, and <laughs> yell fire, but I don't want to actually but see physical. But I want to come home fire. and yeah, be and away makes, from fire. I want to put it in a candle so it's domesticated, yeah. <laughs> and that makes sense. To, so there's a repelling, right? And and then yeah, and then and then our story, yeah, we we take a trip up to Albuquerque, we see a labyrinth for the first time, and we're like, we got to get one of us one of them things. And it really was that way. That was my attitude. We got to get us one of them labyrinths here, so I don't have to drive to Albuquerque. Yeah, you because know, you know how I feel with, about traveling. Yeah, you don't have to go hang out <laughs> with old Pastor Ward. Uh, yes, well, it's a three-hour drive. Come on. <laughs> three-hour tour. Yeah. Like if Richard Rohr wanted to meet with me personally, I'd say, well, maybe halfway at least. You know, <laughs> let's the let's grab a cafe burger or something. Let's go to the Owl Cafe. <laughs> yeah, you know. And you're buying, you know. You, you, you hung out with Oprah, so, you know, Bono. So I actually teased him about that. So I know you're a rock star now because you hang out with Bono and and, uh, and Oprah. And he was like, oh, shut up. Yeah, that's a pretty good roar. <laughs> like, mm, shut up. Uh, anyway, and so then, yeah, we get the idea to build a labyrinth around this fire pit. And, and what was the fire pit is a geometrical design now. It's the center pillar of that labyrinth and it is shocking it's jarring for people to see a desert landscape which i guess you would describe as chaos and then all of a sudden to see just simple stones and it either freaks people out or it intrigues them or both right uh and so all we did was put a circuit of walking i've had people say it's a devil thing and so i've asked so how is walking in an intentional way uh uh, you know, so of the devil. Right, you know, yeah. if I if I go for a, a prayer walk, you would you would say that's okay, but if I walk through uh, some rivets that uh, that right. we designed, yeah. all of a sudden it becomes <laughs> the devil. So you made a path out of rocks. And yeah, the sand. exactly. It's, and I've had that discussion with with people before, and, and I've seen how people you know the and we put a threshold up over it, mm -hmm. uh, and again it was it was accidental. We just we had some leftover straw bales, and thought. All right, let's build half a wall. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, and it becomes the entrance, and that, and that a lot. And we did an episode on that. So, so anyway, so you fall into these things accidentally a lot of times, and uh, yeah, well, you don't. Well, well, we we did. Yeah. No, I mean we all did. And yeah, I mean, yeah, and everybody does. Well, talking about on your your projects now uh, yeah, as an no. architect. Well, sometimes we <laughs> fall into it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. We're not going to mention which client. <laughs> no names. 
Well, it's, it sounds like both. You, you, there's an accidental portion, but there's also, you know, some intention, right? Right. Yeah. Building a cinder block barrier, right? Yeah. Putting the crosses up, you know, and, and this, and I think for the listeners that aren't familiar, this also wasn't overnight. This was no. spread out over no. exactly. several, yeah, yeah, several yeah. years. Crosses, yeah. The, the, the wooden post at the middle of the labyrinth was dumped here from suburbia and we took it, their trash and redeemed it. Turn it into something sacred. So, and, and for people that have never seen the labyrinth, it's it's the the center point of the labyrinth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it all stems back from that move where we decided to build these crosses in my workshop, and we came over here and we stuck them in the ground. Yeah, and that was the first mark of man on that chaos of that site, and from there. It grows and everything evolves into something new over time. And, and they're finding that about Stonehenge, right? Yeah. Had different purposes throughout the different centuries. Yeah. And on that note, we are going to end this episode there. Uh, we will continue it next week, part two. Thank you for tuning in to part one. And uh, thank you to Bill Helm for spending some time with us and having that conversation. Uh, thank you to Jacob Nedia. Once again, that's what you hear in the background with the monk drums and uh, the ruined.com is where you can go to learn more about desert rain community. So thank you for your time. And we will finish this conversation next week. Talk to you then. <laughs>